This is Undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. So Matthew. Yes. Are you familiar with the race riots of the early 20th century? If you had asked me that question three years ago, <laughs> I would say no. Uh, I would have no idea what you're talking about. So let me guess. Did you watch Watchmen? I didn't watch Watchmen. No, I, I started producing a podcast called Undisciplined. <laughs> and I moved to Arkansas. Those two things, I think, were kind of in conjunction with each other of me learning about some of that history. What about Arkansas that brought brought that closer for you? I think being in a space where, you know, I grew up in Illinois and... Uh, we didn't really talk about the civil the civil war from our perspective was we didn't shy away from what the civil war was about uh but that was kind of the beginning and end of uh race conversations where ah, i grew up that's interesting um you know we we learned about rosa parks we learned about the sit-ins we learned about martin luther king the great hits sure <laughs> yeah but none of the deep cuts none of the you know None of the stuff on the B side uh, of <laughs> the, the record, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the stuff that wasn't quite as front of mind, I didn't really know about. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I think, by and large, when I have students in class, you know, that's what they come in expecting to learn, mm -hmm. right? And so, when we have to get into more of the nuance and the complexity, right? It's like, no, give me the test on. An, an MLK, mm -hmm. I Have a Dream speech, Rosa Parks, you know, that's it. Right. And let let us go home. <laughs> yeah. But the years between World War One and the Great Depression were boom times in the United States. And, you know, there was widespread economic expansion. Jobs were plentiful in the city, especially in the North. And so when World War One broke out in Europe, industrialized urban areas in the North, in the Midwest, and the West, they faced a shortage of industrial laborers. Right. And as the war, you know, it had put a, a steady end to the tide of European migration to the United States. Because as we know, in that early period, you know, you had the Chinese Exclusion Act. A bunch, a bunch of immigration um, legislation had gone through that had essentially barred foreigners who did not look like Europeans from coming to the United States. Uh -huh. So when the war kicked off, shortage of labor. With the war production kicked into high gear, recruiters are enticing African Americans to come to the North, right? Much to the chagrin of white Southerners. Sure. Black newspapers, the Chicago Defender, publishing advertisements that are basically highlighting and broadcasting opportunities that are available in cities in the North and the West first-person accounts of African-Americans getting success. And so between 1900 and 1920, the black population of major northern cities grew by large percentages. Yeah. New York, 66%, mm -hmm. right? That's why we'd have the Harlem Renaissance, right? Philadelphia, 500%. Mm -hmm. Detroit, 
611%. So now we know how black people got to these urban areas. At some other point, we'll discuss how they were made to stay there, yeah. right? Redlining and all of that. We see that the, the, this had caused um, enormous population growth, right? And of course, this is going to cause a lot of issues. That's going to spur the race riots of the early 20th century. For instance, there were 26 race riots hmm. in, across 1917 to as 1921. The one that spurred a lot of uh, people's imagination a few years ago by the, with the show Watchmen was right. the Tulsa race riot, right? right? But there were 26 mm-hmm. um, in that early period. In 1919, a mob of at least 10,000 white people stormed the courthouse in Omaha, Nebraska, mm. demanding that the Cheryl turn over Will Brown, who was a 40-year-old black man. They raided the building, scaled the walls, smashed the windows, like kind of like January 6th, mm. right? And when the mob's initial demands were refused, they set, the fi- uh, set fire to the courthouse and turn it into a furnace. And the Omaha mayor tried to intervene but the mob tried to lynch him. Mm. And Smith escaped badly injured, but inside the courthouse, terrified white inmates threw down a note surrendering to the mob. The judge says he will give up the Negro, Brown. He's in the dungeon. There are 10 white prisoners on the roof. Save them. So this is the kind of frenzy that we'll see that would set the stage across numerous cities in the United States that are expanding as African-Americans migrate there. Yeah. The East St. Louis riot, because African-Americans are going to be going there too because of the wartime industries and jobs are going to be available. Um, between 10 to 12,000 African-Americans left the South for East St. Louis mm-hmm. in 1916 and 1917 as a part of the Great Depression. And many of the white citizens of East St. Louis they're occupying neighborhoods that were previously white. They're disturbed by this movement and by the increase in employment of black people in the city's industrial plants. And so in 1917, a rumor spread claiming that a white man had been killed by a black man and tensions boiled over. And the next day, the city of East St. Louis exploded in the worst racial rioting the country had ever seen. Drive-by shootings, beatings, arson targeted at the African-American community. They lasted for nearly a week. Property damage. People ran out of town. Shocking. The carnage. You could imagine how things like that would spur early black nationalist leaders, people like Marcus Garvey. Mm -hmm. In fact, many authors would suggest that this was a major turning point for Garvey, where he gave a speech where he, he spoke about the conspiracy of East St. Louis, where he spoke about how long is the service of the Negro is going to be used to build this country while they're still despised in the eyes of white people. African Americans have fought in every war in this country. Since the, <laughs> Whether it was willfully or otherwise. <laughs> right. And First World War was not excluded, right? right? And African-Americans returning home after the First World War was also going to spur this onslaught, this upsurge and uptick in lynchings and killings. So African-American uh, servicemen are returning home to violent conflict 
um, in this red summer uh, in 1919. Racial tension um, is being exacerbated by African-Americans returning home from the war and wearing their uniform. Right. You know, people are seeing that as being too uppity. Hmm. <laughs> you know, that they are going to be... You know, coming back with ideas, disrupting the labor pool. They're going to be resettling in um, northern cities, right? They're going to be used as strike breakers. Northern black leaders are also encouraging the servicemen to assert themselves. You shed blood for this country. Right. Be right? patriotic. Yes. You're go- you fought at home. Come back. Um, you fought abroad. Come back and fight at home. Yeah. Right. For dignity and respect. So the uniform is a form of that dignity and respect. Right. And even W.E.B. Du Bois is going to be famously calling upon black veterans to not simply uh, return from fighting, but to return fighting, Mm. which echoes that double V campaign of World War II, right? Victory at home and abroad, Mm -hmm. you know. And so black veterans are going to be mistreated. There's going to be an increase in lynching. Remember that only years later, D.W. Griffith had you know, shown the film Birth of a Nation in the White House, mm-hmm. right? And this is going to also um, skyrocket uh, lynchings as well. Lots of white people are perturbed by black men wearing their soldier uniform, yeah. right? And there's going to be a wave of anti-black veteran sentiments causing lynchings all over the country. In Georgia, a black veteran was lynched simply because he wore his uniform too much. Hmm. Wilbur Little an African-American soldier returned to Blakely, Georgia from service in World War One, and a group of white men met him at the train station and forced him to strip off his uniform. A few days later, he defied their warning not to wear the uniform again in public, and a mob lynched him. His lynching sent the message to all African-American soldiers returning from the war that their sacrifices for the cause of liberty in Europe would not lead to racial equality in America. So it's quite interesting. And you're from Illinois. Mm-hmm. Chicago had one of those um, big um, issues, which is quite interesting. In July of the Red Summer of 1919, um, thousands of Chicagoans sought to you know, relieve themselves from that heat stroke of that year. Eugene Williams, a 17-year-old African-American boy, he and his friend, not on purpose, drifted across an invisible line that divided the water by Mm. race. (laughs) And a group of white people began throwing stones at them. One of them struck Williams, causing him to drown. Wow. In the racial powder keg that became Chicago, his murder became a spark that kind of dragged this lynching and the riots of the Red Summer of 1919 out. And so the drowning of Eugene Williams, because the police, of course, refused to arrest the white man who was responsible for his death. And this would, of course, bring crowds together, African-Americans and white people, defending, you know, black people staying in their proper place, not infecting water with their, you know, their polluted bodies and blood and, 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 and bodily fluids. I've never heard this story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that was the spark. It's Illinois public education. The largest race massacre of them all happened here in Arkansas, mm. in Elaine. And we have someone who had collected a series of essay in a book to talk with us a little bit about that today. 
No. Um, Calvin White is an associate dean in the Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences. He joined the university in 2007 in history. He has served as a director of the African and African American Studies program. And he has also served as a fellow in the SEC Leadership Program. His first book, which we'll chat with him a little bit um, about today, The Rise of Respectability, Race, Religion, and the Church of God in Christ, Kojic, was released in October 2012. I'm sure you're interested in that, Matthew. Yeah. And currently, he's working on a complete biography of Oscar Priest, the only African-American to serve in Congress from 1929 to 1934, which is currently under contract with Palgrave Matt Millen. So with that being said, we want to welcome Dean White to the Undisciplined podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ben. And thank you, Matthew, for having me today. Well, I don't have to tell Dean White about, you know, why we have such a podcast called Undisciplined and what it's dedicated to because he, as I mentioned earlier, was the former director of the African Mm -hmm. and African American Studies program. So he is well aware and well in tune and had done this before me, right, about publicizing African African American Studies program and um, the given the length and breadth of all that we do in the program. Right, Dean White? You are absolutely correct. And, you know, it's been wonderful to see new energy, uh, new perspectives come into the program, which is, has been you, Dr. Batten, and, and actually see the program continue to grow and continue to root itself at the University of Arkansas. I could not be any more pleased with the leadership that you have shown to the program, which is the result of one of these podcasts, and I'm here today. So, you know, I want to say again, thank you for your excellent leadership. We all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. And just as I did when I was the, the um, director of the African American Studies program, you know, I want to just say again, great job. And I truly enjoy the podcast and everything that you're doing. And actually sitting here listening to, you know, you and Matthew chat. It's it's different when you're sitting on the other side of this <laughs> and some of the interests because you you see all the natural connections and those connections are there. And, and I was seeing all the intersectionality, even with my book, uh, all the books, the books. So I enjoyed that. So uh, thank you again for having me. We'll be right back. You're listening to a podcast produced by KUAF, your public radio station for more than three decades. Hello, I'm Timothy Dennis. KUAF's on-air programming features the latest news from NPR, with shows like All Things Considered, 1A, and Here and Now, locally hosted music programs on the weekend that you won't find online, local newscasts every weekday morning at 5.30 and 7.30, updates on events happening throughout the KUAF listening area, and more. To listen, tune your radio to 91.3 FM, visit our website, KUAF.com, or tell your smart speaker to play KUAF. You grew up in the South, right? Is that the reason why that's the focus of your research? Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how you come to be interested in that area of study? I grew up in the Arkansas Delta, and I had family on both sides of the river. You know, family in the Arkansas Delta, and I have family in the Mississippi Delta as well. And as I like to tell pe- people, 
is the only thing that separates those two regions is the river. You asked me the difference between, sometimes people ask me, what's the major difference between the Mississippi Delta and the Arkansas Delta? I look at them in amazement when they ask me that. And um, many times I'll say nothing, the river is what? It's the same culture, same mores, many of the same traditions. And the river just divides it. I mean, you literally cross the river and you're in the Arkansas Mississippi Delta and the river can be anywhere from a mile wide to a quarter of a mile. So there's no difference there. One of the things that I hate to hear as we of Arkansans living here is when we we say this joke about thank God for Mississippi. Yeah. And I always look I look always look at and you know, kind of amazement when we say that, because I think most people would be, you know, kind of amazed if just start looking at some of the rankings. And you know, not to give a plug to Mississippi, but in many of those same rankings we're in, Mississippi is ranked higher than we are just above us. And most people in the state of Mississippi would say, you don't even have two SEC schools. <laughs> what are you talking about that you're better than Mississippi? And they really do say that. So, but no, I grew up in the Arkansas, Mississippi Delta, what I, which I see in many instances is one and the same. Growing up there, being able to navigate race, and I learned to navigate race very early on in life without even understanding that that's what I was doing. And taking cues from my mom, taking cues from my dad, and taking cues from my grandparents and seeing how they interacted. We were poor folks. We, you know, we were poor folks and many times we lived in poverty, uh, below the poverty line. And seeing how they actually had to survive and subsistence living many times and sometimes coming home and not having enough to eat or not enough for seconds. And so that, all of that was kind of navigating you because you didn't have what you needed. You needed to know how to go talk to the people who had what you needed. And most of the time, those people didn't look like us, Dr. Banton. So that's what you mean by taking cues? Like what kind of cues were you picking up? Like how to be behave? No, not how to be behave, but how to approach, how to approach and how to engage, how to disarm. Does that make Uh, sense? How to disarm, how to, even in a way that we would call it today, code switching, Dr. Manton, where Mm -hmm. uh, being able to present yourself in a way that would be more accepting to the person that you're engaging with while at the same time disarming them because you needed certain. So I saw my parents and I saw my grandparents do that all the time. And if you look at any of my emails, but there are subtle ways that they maintain their livelihood and their sense of masculinity and femininity as well. If you look at any of my emails, I I don't use my title at all. You know that and we never use our titles when we were talking to each other, you know, Korea, I'm always Korea, you're Korean, I'm always Calvin, but if you look at my emails, I always say C. White Jr. And the reason I use the initial C. White Jr. is because my grandparents, my grandfather, and my father taught me you always use your first initial because it keeps a white person from referring to you by your first name because they would never refer to you as sir or mister. Oh. So it would force them to engage with you in a different way. Wow. And that's what I mean when I say about taking cues that's from remarkable. them. It's, it's forcing them. So when you go home today, when you go to my hometown today, you see that a lot, uh, that men uh, still will not spell out their entire name. They just use their first initial. And that was a way of people forcing whites to use a title, which they, from custom and etiquette, never would. So that's what I meant when I say taking my cues from them. 
And I grew up there and product of the public school system in Stuttgart. And I was, you know, one of the smart kids. And I got a scholarship and I was able to get out of there and go to UCA. And I got my undergraduate degree there and my mat in history and political science. And like most of us, Dr. Mann, I had all of my dreams and hopes set on becoming a lawyer. And at the end of the day, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. I just, I knew that. And so I went back to school and got my master's degree at UCA, history again. And then I was fortunate enough to gain employment at Pulaski Technical College, where I spent the first three years of my career. And from there, uh, I landed at the University of Mississippi, where I received my PhD. And from there to the University of Arkansas, where I've been for the last 16 years. I noticed that your first book, you are writing about race, respectability, and the Church of God in Christ. Did you grow up, grow up uh, Kojic? I did grow up Kojic. I did. And as my sister would tell you, I left the Kojic church and she would tell me that, you know, I know better and I'm going to burn in hell for leaving the Kojic church. <laughs> but... You're going to burn in hell. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I did. I grew up in the Kojic church and it was a part of my life. And it was such a central part in my life. Because you got to go to 25 church services for the week. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's a short week, Dr. Brandon. That's a short week. <laughs> so I grew up in church, and many people will tell you that being able to speak before crowds and being able to speak in a proper way, much of that stems from the church. You're forced to do certain things in the church. But as I grew older, I started questioning the church, like most of us do who become educated and I had many questions about how we were, what we believed in, uh, how we were living, certain cultural things that were impacting me every day that I, I didn't have a framework or cultural framework for those things. And so when I got to school at UCA and especially in graduate school, I started being introduced to all these works, you know, whether it was Carter G. Woodson or Du Bois you know, Washington, I mean, all the, you know, which, you know, are the grandfathers or Higginbotham or all these people, it really start answering a lot of questions about things that I always knew, but I didn't know where they came from. You didn't have the language to, to talk about it then. No, I did not at all. And my education actually gave me the language to be able to not only talk about them, refer to them from a theoretical perspective, but also understand them in a way. I, I always tell the story. Um, like most people, my, I tell the story all the time. My mom was a maid. She finished high school, and my father had a third-grade education. And as I said before, we were poor folks. And growing up there and leaving there because they, the struggles that they, the struggles they went through, and some of the opportunities they provided us, I was able to leave. And you know, when you're growing into your own and you're trying to figure your figure yourself out in the world, there was a short period of time there that I started thinking about. You know, what was wrong with my parents? Why could they not get it together? What was going on there? And Dr. Ben, I'll be honest with you, and I'm ashamed to say this, but there was about a six, seven month period of time there, especially when I was a freshman, I started to look at my parents with a kind of a side eye, what we call a side eye in our culture. And so as the, as the deeper I got into the, my education, I grew to have the most profound respect and love for my parents and my grandparents. Because what I found out as a result of my education, they, they always worked. They were not lazy. They were not shiftless. They were not trying to make it. They had been victims of a system that regulated them to certain status in society and then produced other mechanisms that were 
designed to keep them there. Keep them in their places. Absolutely. They were victims of a system. And now look back at that. All of my brothers and sisters, we made it out of there. And they were all collegially educated in one way or another. I have such a profound sense of pride in them. I have such a, because these are people who were victims of a Jim Crow society, but yet still raised children and were able to educate them and to push them forward. And so I tell people that all the time about so many times we can take that and we can wear that as a badge of shame. But if we have the proper lens and what you said, the language and understanding, you know, you, you view it very differently when you understand what you have been, you know, a product of, and that's what my education did to, for me. And that's what led me to Mississippi. I tell everyone, uh, I got into Vanderbilt and I got into Mississippi. And the reason I didn't go to Vanderbilt is because they didn't fund me my first year. They said, we we're going to base your funding off the merit of your, off the second year. And I was like, I can't do that. But at the same time, I went to Mississippi to get the PhD because what better place if you're going to understand the history of the South than a place called Ole Miss and to <laughs> unpackage that. <laughs> and unpackage what that meant so that I landed there. And so, yes, my, the book stems from my childhood. And it was a basic question about why have Kojic folks been shunned in the black community? Why are these people always seen as the uneducated people who did not support racial uplift or respectability? And I found out and I, that was a central theme to the book, my first book in the dissertation. And that's what that's what led to, again, from my own personal history, that first book stemmed from that trying to answer my own questions about my lived experience. Can you give a little bit of context to what kind of separates the Church of God in Christ from, say, a, a Southern Baptist church or, or an evangelical church that folks may be familiar with? Absolutely. And I'll tell you for specifically that uh, in, in the African-American tradition or the black, I say black tradition a lot, these, these are people who clung to these, what we would refer to as vestiges, of the slave religion that many of these vestiges that survived the middle passage and took root in the, the West Indies and especially the low country and spread. And what they did is they, the overt emotionalism, the dancing, the shouting, and what is unique to the Kojic church, they believe in something called glossinalia, which is not unique to that. You see other uh, white denominations as well. The ability to speak in tongue, and not only the ability to speak in tongues, but the ability to interpret tongues as well. And to be in the ability of what Dr. Banton and I would know from across the water and, you know, is, you know, spirit possession, they, the Holy Spirit coming in. Well, you got to think about this, Matthew, in a time when African-Americans have been recently emancipated and they're trying to show whites that they're just as capable of learning. They're just as capable of everything that they are. They're trying to live up to the standard of whiteness. And the one institution that blacks control, which is their church, that goes against everything that many of these black, what I call cosmopolitan sophisticates are trying to prove to whites, meaning it, it flies directly in the face of that. So there was a movement to distance themselves from this overt charismatic ritual and liturgy to this quiet inwardly study you know, kind of like the Methodist tradition of which I'm a part of today. Very fine. There's a method to why we do what we do. There's a liturgy here uh, to why we do what we do. And so that's, that's what the book stems from. And looking how, how other blacks reacted to this religious denomination that started right here in Arkansas in the South and grew 
to every state in the country, every state in the country, and about 38 states around the world right now. And Dr. Banton was talking about the Great Migration earlier. There are people who take this church out of the South and plant it in these northern industrial areas via Great Migration routes. So it's all connected. So, you know, Dr. White, this is very interesting to me because for a short spell there, I was a part of the Pentecostal church. I think I've told the story before, (laughs) Matthew, about um, growing up in Jamaica and my mother, like all the kids from church, they were going to go get baptized. And I never saw baptism before. And my mother said I could only go if I got baptized. So I went. (laughs) But, you know, I know that, you know, I know it very well. But I also, for a short spell, I went to an Anglican school and then I was for a short spell there also in Catholic church. And, you know, thinking about race and respectability and the piety and the liturgy and, you know, all the things that people uh, associate with white civility. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. I think for me, when I think of, you know, when I think of the comparison, I grew up in a Baptist church and in college and after college started going to a Methodist church, the, the separation that we sometimes think about with church is, is uh, low church and high church. And this yes. idea that yes. low church is kind of this charismatic, it's this more spontaneous. Exactly. Whereas high that's church. that's the church I love. Right. And high church is more of this methodical, Gold. it's mm-hmm. l- liturgical, it's this kind of like very structured kind of almost the same thing every week kind I of idea. I used to hate that structured church. I'm like, I'm like, when does Jesus enter? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, you're going to have to tell Jesus to come now because, you know, like <laughs> going to Catholic church, everything was so structured. Everything seemed to be like, it was so the structured piety. Yeah. I couldn't understand this thing that we were calling the spirit, right. how it would move. In what way would it be able to move if everything was so structured? Right. Well, the idea there, I think, and, and Calvin, you can kind of correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea is that in the planning, the the leaders who are planning the service are being led by the Spirit in their planning of the liturgy, in the choosing of the Scripture, in the thoughtfulness of the prayers that they're planning. It's in that moment that the Spirit is working so that when when the service comes, the Spirit has led to that moment, right? And absolutely, Matthew, and that goes, let me pivot right there and connect it because it's a central theme that's unique what you just said, you're absolutely right about the African-American context at the time when these churches are being planted in America and the social pressures and the racial pressures you know, being exerted upon them. At that point, you, the Koji Church says you only need to be – the Spirit needs to be able to call you. The Spirit needs to be able to move in you to allow you to do everything that you just said there where with African-American middle class and that growing middle class and these sophisticates, they wanted a more orderly, ordained, Ah. educated laity. They wanted those people educated in a way. Ida B. Wells, one of my heroes, she said, uneducated African-American preachers do more harm to the race than anybody else because she's ascribing to those notions of respectability. respectability. And ah. Absolutely. The respectability therein kind of lies with the white community, right? It's trying absolutely. to be white. It's that, exactly, yeah. that living up that standard bearer of this otherness that you're trying to achieve that they really believe that will, will indirectly 
gain them privileges, whether it's socially, economically, or politically. If I can show them in our lit in our ways of life that we are refined, we are educated, we we can you know that they can the system will drop uh, will loosen for them, and they would receive certain privileges. Now we know that as we go later, it's not always the case, and it's what Dr. Banton talked about earlier. As we see this growing middle class, and we see this growing refinement, we see this high church becoming the establishment, or many in many areas in these black churches, or the black Wall Street, black business owners, whites will react negative to that because now that was an indirect challenge to the social order. Competition. Absolutely. And so they responded very negatively to that with violence. So this notion that the system would shake something loose and render them certain things never came about. It's understandable why they believed it and they, and they really tried to you know, ascribe to it, subscribe to it. But then we know later as historians what happened when they did, when, you know, when they did do that. Interrupted in what Dr. Ben was talking about, the violence of 1919 and that and, and the racial and these racial uh, uh, conflicts that happen across the country. And especially, and I, I tell my students this all the time, you can exert a notion of equality without walking in a, well, without walking in a front door or sitting at a lunch counter. It's what Dr. Benton was talking about earlier. It's the notion of wearing the same uniform that a white person is wearing. It's a notion of being able to own your own business and compete with the white-owned businesses that, that robs them. So those are notions of exerting equality with, without the aspect of what most students arrive in our classrooms thinking today. So we, de- you know, we deconstruct that. And it's exactly what Dr. Benton was talking about earlier, how they come in with these greatest hits of what they think they know. And what we try to do in these classes is deconstruct all of that and get them thinking about these things in a very different way. So you were saying that all these African retentions, right, whether it's, um, you know, you're catching the spirit or you're the hoodoo or the African derived religion that invariably would be kind of melded. Because I'm telling you, Dr. White, I went to church with my grandmother, Pentecostal, (laughs) and she would come back from church and sprinkle lime and salt around the house. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, and so to be respectable, you have to get rid of the lime and salt. You have to get rid of the African <laughs> retention because that's not respectable. Yes. You can you have to get into ritual like things that's going to articulate or or show white people that black people are deserving of certain privileges and certain um rights in the country via the church. And Dr. Van, let me pick up right there. And when you don't have the proper lens and the language to understand that, what you can do and you will do is start to grow and start to disdain certain elements of who you are uniquely, who you are and what you are. Because what I learned is why should African-Americans have to distance themselves what is uniquely who and what they are to be able to occupy a space in the public domain here, meaning is exactly what you said. So you have to be careful with this whole notion of respectability because respectability in many essence, the ultimate achievement of it will leave an African-American lost without a culture and empty. 
and people tend to equate respectability to racial uplift, but that's one of the major debates that you're interrogating or you're entering into about the multiple routes that people are offering for racial uplift, like the famous Booker T. Washington, Du Bois debate, right? Do we take this kind of vocational education or do we take classical education or do we do like Marcus Garvey and flee this racist country, you know? (laughs) Or do we stay here and put on these, um, assimilate into whiteness, right? Meaning that we get rid of our African parts and, 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 and take on European culture so that, you know, we're, we're unrecognizable to ourselves. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, I tell this funny story, Matthew, the, I think it was last week or week before last, um, and Dr. Batna found this funny. I had a, I had to go to New York for work. And when I was there, I had just by being in New York and being around, I wanted curry goat <laughs> and I didn't get a chance to get curry goat and I wanted some curry goat. Now I grew up eating curry goat. I grew up eating oxtail. I grew up eating certain things that are distinctly African-American. But now because you claw yourself into the middle class, some people would say you shouldn't eat those things anymore. <laughs> but I still do because they're culturally who I am and what I am. So I, I was texting Dr. Batten the other day saying, hey, I want some curry goat. Can you tell me a place I can get some really good curry goat? <laughs> Give me a curry goat recipe. And she hooked me up with some curry. But that's a, that, is, that is a notion of what we're talking about. It's, it's being able to operate in a space and being able to operate in that space that's equal to other people, but yet not relinquishing everything culturally and from a heritage point of view of who you are. And that's the tension and the rub that my first book really kind of evolves around. On the next episode of Undisciplined, we continue our conversation with Dr. White and talk about Oscar DePriest, the first African-American to be elected to Congress in the 20th century. What got you interested in Oscar DePriest? A mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Like most research. Undiscipline is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by me, Matthew Moore. Our show's associate producer is Rachel Bernstein. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't had a chance yet, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app.